We really need to recreate uh, an emotional link with the nature. Not only, you know, uh, talk about stocks, the trend of uh, CO2, to the global warming, uh, talk about the threat on the human, you know, just say they deserve it. They really deserve it. We have to save the well, not only because we want our children to see the well, we have to save the well because they also love their children. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Lindsay Stern. In 2007, our guest, Fabrice Schnoller, was sailing off the coast of Mauritius in East Africa when he had an encounter that would change his life and open a new frontier in marine biology. As his boat neared land, huge pillars of steam burst out of the water and began surrounding the boat. Schnoller, an experienced diver, grabbed his snorkeling gear and jumped in to investigate. No sooner had Schnoller slipped under the water than he was overwhelmed by a crashing, creaking sound. Glancing down, he discovered a set of what appeared to be huge, dark monoliths accelerating towards him. They were sperm whales, the animal that inspired Herman Melville's Moby Dick, and the bearers of the largest brains ever known to have existed on Earth. Researchers know relatively little about these whales, given the challenges of freediving with them and studying them. What we do know is that each sperm whale's neocortex, the part of the brain that governs higher-level thought in humans, is estimated to be six times the size of ours. It also contains spindle cells, the brain structures correlated with speech in humans. In sperm whales, these cells exist in far greater concentration than they do in human brains. As the whales approached Schnoller, the creaking, crashing sound he had heard before intensified. It was coming from the whales, and it was so powerful that Schnoller felt it in his bones. The whales were echolocating, translating the noise ricocheting off of Schnoller into a three-dimensional image of his body. This faculty, shared by bats and a variety of other vertebrates, would have enabled them to see inside of his body as we might with the help of an X-ray. The whales hovered around Schnoller for the next two hours, emitting bursts of these nuanced clicking noises. They appeared to be communicating with each other, and perhaps even trying to communicate with him. The encounter inspired Mr. Schnoller to found Darwin, an innovative initiative aimed at unpacking the mysteries of whale click communication and exposing it to the wider public. In the nine years since the project launched, Schnoller and his team have amassed the largest database of sperm whale behavior and vocalizations in history, all collected non-invasively through freediving. They have been among the first to bring virtual and augmented reality technologies underwater, opening an exciting new frontier in the study of animal behavior. In partnership with the New York Times, these path-breaking researchers have also produced The Click Effect, a VR film screened at the Sundance, Tribeca, and Cannes Film Festivals. Darwin's recordings are published on an open-source platform, available to any researchers interested in analyzing them. We're thrilled to have Darwin's founder, an intrepid thinker, world-class diver, biologist, and cinematographer here with us today. Fabrice Schnoller, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Good evening. So back in 2007, when you had this encounter, you were not involved with real research at all, right? You were an engineer working on systems for tracking sharks. What happened? In fact, to, to be honest, I was not even working with sharks. I was just working in buildings. Uh, I was working in a big company, building bridge and public lightning. And uh, I was just going with a friend on a boat. And what happened, in fact, is, uh, I think, a kind of hazard. Uh, because when I was um, finishing my study as an engineer, I, I did spend my thesis on a lab uh, that was studying the brain. And I was doing computing at this time. And after I forgot it and... And uh, maybe 15 years after, I had this encounter with the whales. Uh, it was really uh, breathtaking, incredible, life-changing. Life and when I went back um, to document what I saw, I didn't know which kind of whale it was. If it was, uh, I thought it was humpback whale or any kind of whale. And I discovered it was sperm whale. And the first uh, image I got on, on Google about this whale was their brain, you know. And it was not only this uh, very, very large brain, it was more than that. It was a lot of cortex. It was a lot of physiological aspect of this brain that uh, made it incredible. And 
Uh, it reminds me of this three months uh, I was in this lab and I was saying, oh, is this possible, you know, or, or is it possible an animal has this kind of brain? Mm. Because, right, so the, the, the neocortex, as we were saying, it's six times the size of a human's, right? It's not only a question of size. I always say, uh, as to make a joke, you know, if it was a question of size, men would be smarter than women. Uh, size doesn't matter. No, I think it's more a question of density. You know, uh, I remember there was this article about the, someone stole the Einstein brain and, and we didn't find any difference between Einstein brain and a normal human brain. But inside the brain, there was more density of the glial cell that uh, cell that give energy to the neurons. So I think it's... Uh, It's more what you find inside the brain and inside the spermal brain. There are a lot of amazing things. There is this uh, cortex that is uh, very, very developed uh, with, through the gyrus. That means uh, you create a surface because, you know, we, we are encapsulated in the head. So we need to have a gyrus to have a more surface of the cortex. And they have much more than us. They have a lot of uh, spindle cell uh, mirror neurons that are, you know, these neurons that uh, made us uh, human, you know, that uh, allow us to have some empathy. And more than that, they, they lose the, the primitive part of, of the brain, you know, uh, this part that uh, make us have some very primitive reaction. And this animal lo lost it completely. So on a scale of evolution, uh, they have a brain that is uh, more developed, uh, more advanced than us. What is it like to be with them in the water in that you've talked about in previous interviews before about how there are only about 20 people in the world studying researchers studying sperm whales and you're one of the only ones if not the only one that is actually in the water with the whales uh, which is of course how you initially encountered them too so there's a poignancy there um, and you, you've said w quite evocatively previously that you know Jane Goodall didn't study apes from an airplane which would be the equivalent and I'm curious could you talk about why being in the water both inspired you with, with them, both inspired you to want to pursue this question um, and also why that's critical to advancing our understanding and, and science. So first, uh, if I knew it was sperm, well, maybe I would not have been in the water. <laughs> because, you know, when you see an animal, has a, some of them have 20 or 30 centimeters of teeth. Yeah, these, are are the, these are the largest animals right. with teeth on Earth. That's <laughs> eight inches, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a real predator. It's like a, not like a whale that just, uh, you know, harvests uh, little fish. No, he's really having fights with a giant squid, with sharks. And uh, he, he had fights with humans, you know, remember Moby Dick. So this guy uh, can be very, very bad if he wants. But at the same time, if you go in the water and you don't bother him, they are very, very friendly. So that's a, that's the first real question, you know, because when you see what they have to face, uh, uh, 30 years ago they were uh, killed, uh, you know, for oil. So a lot of them are contemporary of this time. So, for instance, uh, elephants, uh, remember what we did to them. If you go walking in the savannah, it's quite dangerous. But with sperm whale, it's not like that. It's the contrary. Uh, what is very impressive with them is that they are very self-confident. Most animals like uh, dolphins or even humpback whales, they are very shy. You know, they come, they look at you, but they don't know how close they can come. And they are all, always, you know, a bit tense and a, a bit afraid. Sperm whale is not that at all. You know, he's coming straight to you, look in your eyes, and he's just very curious. And more than curious, he's like studying you, you know. He's looking at you, turning around you, they, and they start to turn to each other, like discussing about you, you know. So uh, sometimes it's like you don't know who is looking at who, you know. And uh, you really see uh, in their behavior, in their eyes, that they are wondering, you know, they are analyzing, they are trying to understand. And you have, I have some example of that. You know, sometimes they, an example, they, one day they even stole a camera during two minutes to look at it. <laughs> you know, you don't expect that from a whale, you know. Maybe from a ape that is quite like us, but... Uh, so these animals are very curious, and I think what is very, very impressive uh, is their eye, you know, the way they look at you. I think uh, we we are, through uh, these mirror neurons, able to analyze emotion in the face, emotion in the eyes very accurately, you know, as humans. But we don't find this with our animals. It's quite difficult to read emotions in other animals. But with a sperm whale, you, you get this back, you know. There is a lot of uh, expression in the eyes, the way it look at you, and you're barely able to read their emotion to see their interests, or maybe to see there are some individuals that are even you know, smarter than others in the way they look at you, the way they approach you. 
And this thing, uh, I, ne I never had it with any uh, Universitasian, you know, there. Maybe the Orca is a bit the same, but I don't, I don't have uh, till now a lot of experience with Orca. I've been on, only two time with them, but I think it's kind of the same uh, animal, you know, they have no threat. Uh, they are predators, they are not afraid, and they come to look at you. You've you've written, too, about there was a time when one of the younger sperm whales approached your camera, and then the other whales showered clicks over it, and then it kind of retreated. Yeah, yeah. So that, that raises the question why, uh, why it's important to go in the water to study them, because there is always a question uh, as a scientist. You, you will say, if you go in the water, you, you change their behavior, for sure. So if you study the normal behavior uh, of the whale, uh, you cannot rely on this kind of observation because you will change it for sure. But at the same time, uh, if you have an, an hypothesis, a very simple hypothesis that sometimes they use their social sign with you, their social vocalize, in a way they talk to you, you must go in the water to study that because they really come to you and use their sound facing you with posture towards you. So uh, if you accept this hypothesis that uh, the animal try to communicate with you, you have to go in the water to study that. After that, it can be a different level. You know, I'm, I'm not saying uh, now uh, we, they are talking to us. You know, we can communicate with uh, the dog when the dog is barking. Uh, this dog uh, is sending some information to us. You know, we know if he's happy, if he's angry, if he's someone at the gate. Uh, but I think what is interesting now is to say, okay, we have this animal coming to us. And we had the feeling that there was really a communicative behavior. Uh, and we see their brain, uh, their brain, the way they educate their children, 15 years, uh, allow us to think uh, that uh, they have quite a sophisticated way to communicate. And after that, the real question of the Darwin project is to say, okay, when we are going in the water, do, is there any attempt of communication with us? And, you know, uh, science is studying dolphins for 50 years. We know they can communicate quite a sophisticated way, but we don't even know how. It's the same thing with whale. Uh, and with sperm whale, we have quite no data because no one was going in the water. So I think it's uh, really an open book of our research right now to see if there is some kind of language in the ocean. It's a very... Um, uh, you know, a holy world language, you know, we assume language is only uh, something that uh, human can use. But I, I, I use uh, this word in, in intent because I think uh, language is really linked to consciousness to and uh, to, you know, to the ability, uh, what we call the theory of mind, you know, the ability to, to know you exist and to know over exist and have over thoughts. And uh, these animals, the, the, way, uh, the way they live, the way... Uh, the social network they have and the way they uh, behave with you when you are going in water allow really to think you are at this level. Mm. And why is it important that you do that without any equipment? So you do it as free diving. Uh, well, you do it with equipment of obviously the cameras and audio recording equipment, but otherwise you're going underwater just holding your breath for you know up to eight minutes or more at a time. And this is you know, very, really hard work on many levels, not something clearly that's taught in a traditional academic program or anything like that. But could you explain sort of what it looks like when you're collecting that data out in the field and the type of why you're doing it free diving and, and what type of data that is? So to, um, to explain uh, how we do it, we use free dive. We have a former world champion of free diving in the team, in fact. And uh, there is many reasons for that. The first a very obvious reason is uh, that is not natural, very natural to go in the water with tank, with electronic, with a lot of gear, you know, makes you uh, very strange. Uh, but on another level, uh, it's not only about that, about the noise you can make with bubble and everything. I think going into the water free diving is more a state of mind, you know, when you have to go for some minute underwater, uh, you have to economize uh, your metabolism. So the first thing you economize is your muscle, uh, but 20% uh, of your metabolism is your brain. So you have to put yourself in a state of mind that economizes oxygen with your brain. So it doesn't mean you stop to think. It means you put yourself in a kind of meditation state. Uh, that's what makes the difference with very good freediver. A world champion of freediving is able to, to go in this uh, meditating uh, state of mind that is a very low consumption uh, 
con consumption uh, of oxygen. So when you are in this uh, state of mind, I, I promise you, the animals really feel it. I, I don't say they are, you know, telepath or this kind of thing. I say they see it through your move, you know. You are very soft move. You are very, uh, I, I would say, aquatic. And in fact, you imitate them, you know, because they do the same. You know, when they have to go, uh, for, for instance, a sperm whale is going uh, up to two hours, free diving underwater to 2,000 meters, they have to do exactly the same thing. So you, you go in their world. You adopt uh, their, their behavior. You adopt uh, uh, the, the way they, they swim. You're aquatic. And when you, you imitate them, they come to you. That's how it works. Let's actually hear some of these clicks now. And, and as we'll hear, they're extraordinarily nuanced. But we'll talk about what that means and also what it means that they're doubling as echolocation and potentially communication. So I'm going to play them here right now. So what's going on there? On the one hand, we we have evidence that this is this is how they're perceiving, right? So this is a sonar, their sonar system, the collocation, uh, that uh, also have uh, you know dolphin or orca, uh, and there is a pod of sperm whale. So here there is many animals, and you hear all of them uh, clicking. They can arrange this sound also in some sequences, uh, rhythmic sequences that are called codas. And these codas are assumed to be the social sound they use to communicate. The question now is, okay, if they just do this click and they arrange them in rhythmic way, it's kind of morse, you know, you cannot uh, send a lot of information doing that. You know, it's not a, it's not a way, a very efficient way to communicate. So uh, when I saw that, I, I was thinking, you see this animal, you see their brain, you see their society. You see the way they, they behave. It's not possible. There is not something more evolved to communicate. And I asked myself my, this very simple question. Are these clicks only used to see the world uh, as a sonar? Or can they also use it to communicate? And um, if they do that, it, it opens a, a completely different way of, uh, of communicating. You know, for instance... Uh, we have, I think, as human, a very primitive way to communicate. We, we code what we call monem and phonem, different sequences of sound in time. And uh, the bandwidth of our communication is limited by uh, up to 30 bytes per second. You know, we, we talk about megabyte, terabyte. Human communicate at a speed of 30 bytes per second because we cannot Put a lot of information we we have only some letters and and after we can encode these sounds and we'll have them in time if you assume uh, these animals could use their sonar system uh, to send information it means they could, would be able to send a quite a large amount of information in a millisecond uh, sound that's what they receive when they use the sonar you know they send this very very short sound to a target the sound ribbons on the target come back with a lit little bit of delay inside, but it's still a very, very uh, short sound, and they get it all. They get you in 3D like an echography. So they, it is sure that uh, they are able to receive a large amount of information through these sounds. The question after that is, okay, are they able to send to themselves this kind of information through their sonar system? So that would mean, right, so just to spell it out, I, that would mean that when a whale is using these clicks in the presence of another whale to communicate, given that the clicks or how they navigate the ocean in general and scope out objects, it would be embedding a sonic artifact in that sound such that it would register in the other whale's mind as a fully formed image. Is that right? It's very uh, difficult to answer, but we always need, uh, as human, you know, we are very anthropocentric. So we want to understand the way uh, uh, the way they collocate with our tool, but we are limited as human. We just have, uh, you know, vision and audition. So trying to understand what is a collocation or to explain it, for me, the same thing is someone uh, was blind uh, from birth and you try to explain him what is vision. You cannot. If you have only audition, you cannot imagine what is vision to see. So I think it's exactly the same thing. It's an over-sensory system. 
So we can imagine it's a bit like, you know, uh, seeing some kind of holographic form. But I think it's another sensory system, you know. So uh, with their mind, they create uh, a different uh, perception, a different emotion with it. It's incredible to think about, too, those radically different, perhaps in some ways, perceptual worlds coinciding with shared emotions, potentially, or shared feelings of all the things that the, you know, the neocortex is, is thought to be involved in, be it love or affection or uh, family relations, etc. I had read an article by you in the BBC prior to this interview in which it, another researcher was quoted talking about how some people believe now that the whales may even use sound to touch or to caress other whales at a distance as a sign of affection. And we should say, which is just, I thought was so stunning. Um, and we should say too that for anyone who doesn't know, which was myself included until relatively recently, that these are the loudest animals on earth. So they're also potentially sending these um, signals to communicate with other whales at really extraordinary distances. So anyway, so, so the point being there, how stunning it is that the different perceptions could come together in, in a shared uh, sort of affection and playfulness, as you've seen firsthand. Yes, for sure. You know, I think uh, it is assumed uh, that the, the language uh, and the words create uh, our, uh, what we call, uh, our umwelt, you know, the, the way uh, we perceive the world and the way we, our, our emotion. And the, but I think uh, what is very, very interesting in this hypothesis is uh, that we always uh, put ourselves on, at the top of the scale, you know, uh, and we know more and more that we are not the best in every field, you know, for example, in short memory, uh, helps are better. Uh, or, you know, some, even a squirrel can remember, I think, uh, where he did put a 300 nuts. There is a lot of different skills that some animals, um, you know, have better than us. But we still assume that we are the only one to have a language and that make us kind of a uh, kind of God, you know, I, I recently wrote an, an article about um, Darwin uh, and I finished, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of uh, uh, very uh, out of subject, but, uh, you know, the, the Bible starts by, is to say, um, the beginning was the world and the world was God and the world was offered by God. It means that the fact we have a language, you know, in our culture, it makes us human and, and smarter than anything. But uh, we can also imagine we are limited by this language, by the way we use it, by uh, our sensory system. And imagine if other animals have different sensory system and different brains, they could be in some way more efficient than us uh, in communicating. For instance, sending more information in a shorter amount of time or another simple example, uh, we can assume a whale can hear another whale at a large distance. Uh, if you are a dolphin, you will hear over a dolphin at some kilometer. If you are well, you could hear over well at maybe 100, 200 kilometers. It means that if you were a dolphin or if you were well, you would hear the conversation of everybody around you in some kilometers. So I don't know where you are, but I think there are quite a lot of people around you right now. Something is sure, there have never been a... a an attack, uh, you know, a fatal attack of any cetacean on human uh, in the wild. So it happened in facilities in sea world, but in the ocean, never happened. Ne never an orca or a sperm whale or even dolphin uh, really attacked someone. There was, was some accident, but uh, no, no attack. So, but these animals are quite, uh, you know, wild. Huh? They are the, the dolphins are tigers of the sea. Huh? You know, they are not uh, very kind with each other. They never, never attack women. At the contrary, they are very, very careful. And uh, sometimes it's even more, more than that. You know, you, you can meet a, a mother with a baby and you, you would assume that the mother will try to protect her baby from human. But sometimes it's more of a mother that tries to protect the human from the baby. You know, you really see that. You know, when the baby, too, the calf is too excited, the mother comes and calms him down. Or, or another very in, impressive example uh, my, my associate in Darwin, Fred, uh, Fred Boyle, he, he just observed uh, a sperm whale birth in Azores uh, three years ago. And they just arrived just after it. You know, they were not at the exact uh, time it was happening, but there was still some blood. You can see the umbilic. And there was a mother with a baby, the newborn, 
and there was maybe two, three wells around them, and more and more sperm whales were arriving, you know, from everywhere to see the baby. And the end, they, they had maybe 40 sperm whales. It was kind of a ceremonial, like the mother was taking her baby and showing it, pushing it to every sperm whale. So they were like, wow, it's beautiful. But what happened was even more impressive is that at one point after some minutes, the mother took her baby in her mouth and bring it to the divers to show it to the divers. So that's, that is for me really impressive. It shows the ability of a sperm whale uh, to project herself in her mind, you know, to see she she wants us to enjoy or see, to see her, to see her calf, you know. She associates us uh, to, to, this, to this event, you know, that is quite incredible. That's extraordinary. It makes me think too that about, you know, the fact that obviously if they're seeing into our bodies with their echolocation and, you know, as you've written and said before, you can see our lungs and our brain and this combination of characteristics. They likewise could see, you know, if someone was swimming and pregnant, for instance, and that the whales know so much about us. And as you've said, you know, perhaps encounters like that indicate that the whales see more similarity with us than we, most of us in our species, Darwin and and you and your colleagues being an exception, than we see with, with them, which is really a, a striking realization. Yes, to be honest, uh, you know, I, I I have been with a lot of people that uh, a lot of people want to swim with a whale. And most of them, they just want to look at the whale, uh, to swim with the whale, to enjoy uh, their time. But very, very few people are able uh, to project themselves into the whale and say, okay, is the whale enjoying it? What is thinking the whale? What is, is the whale looking at me? And I think sometimes, sometimes I feel like more whales are able to do it, you know. When there is an encounter uh, between a whale and a human, sometimes I really feel the whale is more wondering about what we are thinking than we are wondering about what she is thinking. Sometimes I think uh, they have more, it's proven, they have more uh, spindle cell than us, and I see it in their behavior. Mm. How did you come to think about whales and, and other animals in this in this manner. That strikes me that as a really remarkable thing that, and, you know, I, we know the, the story as we talked about at the beginning of the encounter off of Mauritius. But I imagine that, like you said, many people who just want to swim with whales have an encounter like that and it's stunning and it's extraordinary. And then they go back to their day job too. And I'm curious just about, about your background or your childhood or, or what, what were the circumstances that led you to have this very unusual point of view? So, so for sure, I, I'm quite uh, oceanic. I, I was born in Polynesia. I was grown up. Uh, I was uh, in the in, grown up in Lagoon, in fact, uh, all my childhood. So I spent all my life in the water. So I, I'm quite com- comfortable with uh, with the sea and with its inhabitants. But uh, still, I had to wait uh, 40 years before having an encounter with sperm whale that is quite rare and difficult uh, to get. Uh, the thing that uh, really made me jump into uh, this thing is, uh, I think, uh, coincidence. This thing that uh, I was an engineer, uh, that I had work on this brain thing, that I had some idea about what can be the collocation on a, I would say, on a physics or mathematic point of view. Because in fact, what I was doing in this thesis as an engineer was using uh, uh, what we call a time a reverse. Uh, formula to, to recreate an image of a neural activity in the brain. So it was exactly the kind of thing I could use to imagine what would be a communication with a whale. So it's what I call uh, uh, an intuition. Sometimes, you know, you have different memory in your brain that are not linked, you know, and you have an event that will link everything, you know, that will make it coherent and you will get an, what we call an ID, you know. And uh, that day, that's exactly what happened. You know, I had this memory from this uh, lab research. I had some skill about what was a radar and, you know, and all this knowledge, all this background and and uh, the chance I had to meet them. Maybe I have this intuition that not only there was a, an attempt of communication uh, with their sonar, but I, I had also an idea of, oh, it would be possible, you know? So it was... Uh, just living the thing, having emotion, but also in background, you know, some memories popping up and make me think, okay, why not, you know? Is it really impossible that now these animals are not only looking at me with their sonar, but maybe sending something? Mm. And one avenue that Darwin's been exploring is 
the possibility of encoding sound images of objects from our world and broadcasting them at the whales. Is that right? So, yeah, the, the question is now, how, how can you prove scientifically uh, that animals use ecolocation to communicate? So uh, there is different level uh, to do that. Uh, it's not an easy thing, you know. Uh, everyone would say, okay, you want to try to talk with them. That is the last level. And I'm not sure one day we will have a chance to do that. But the first thing you want to understand is the protocol. Uh, what is the protocol of communication? For a human, is conversation means you have to look people in the eyes and you have to uh, talk one after each other. Uh, and, you know, with a whale, it's not the same thing. You know, for instance, per whale talk at the same time. They overlap. Uh, or maybe they can talk uh, at three or at four. You don't know. Or maybe they don't look, uh, they don't need to face each other to do it. So the first thing we needed to do it was to understand how they behave when they use this communication sound. So we first developed a tool that has a kind of acoustic antenna that we finished to develop three years ago that allowed us to, to see which whale is talking. And uh, because to a whale don't open the mouth, you know, it's not like human, you cannot know which one is doing the sound. And allow us to analyze, okay, if this one is making a sound, what is his position with the other one? So understand how they behave when... Uh, they use these social sounds and after maybe able to observe uh, that they do the same with us and have the same position coming to us. Uh, after that, okay, we we uh, we don't have any proof of nothing. You know, we just have a sight, a glimpse uh, of their their way of communicating. So uh, we we are now working on a, a more uh, a more impressive proof of concept that is uh, sending them. Uh, monographic sound. So the problem of this is if you want to send a sound that means something for echolocation, uh, you need an array of speaker. Uh, you cannot send it from one speaker because, in fact, uh, an echolocation sound is something that has rebound on, uh, on a target or inside something. And that has a, a lot of different delay uh, coming from a surface. It's quite complicated to explain, but you cannot send it through one speaker. You have to use 20, 30, 40, 50 speaker. The more uh, speaker you use, the more definition you have. Uh, for instance, uh, it's like pixel with a picture. You know, if you uh, if you have uh, two pixel, your picture uh, it doesn't have a lot of definition. If you have uh, two million of pixel, it's a beautiful picture. So uh, we are working now on uh, on a solution that allows us. Uh, I cannot still I explain what it is because uh, we found a very, very efficient and simple solution uh, to do it at a lower cost because uh, doing it with an array of speaker was incredibly expensive because uh, if you wanted to use a 30 speaker underwater with the electronics that go with it, the first answer of the, of the lab was, okay, you need a boat with a big cable and that was not possible, you know. And we cannot have a 20 computer or, you know, sound, a big sound card with 30 speaker. So we had to miniaturize it and to be able to have something that go underwater and we can just use free diving and send uh, this pattern to the animal. So the, the goal of this is very, very simple, is that the first um, step of communication is always to identify most of the time. That's what, uh, if you go to China, you don't speak Chinese, you first say your name. You identify yourself. And the, the first uh, stage of Darwin uh, six years ago was uh, you working on this with Dolphin. Uh, we're working on acoustic signature. So in fact, Dolphin used whistle to identify themselves. And uh, we, uh, we made a presentation, uh, a poster about this uh, at a conference that they use also this uh, whistle signature with humans or going towards humans. So it means uh, we can... Imagine that if we use this kind of of, uh, of sound, first they will be very interested. It was the fact with the dolphin when we sent them their signature, they were super interested. Mm. They completely changed their behavior. You know, it was like uh, for me, it was like if a dolphin came to me and said Fabrice, you know, I would be wow. So after that, I can say you have a very very cooperative dolphin. So I first make the hypothesis if we're able to send a sound that has a structure to a, to a sperm whale, they say, 
wow, that's the first time I see a human do that. So they come around us and say, start maybe to discuss. But I think also they, they, they could be an attempt to meet, imitate this sound. So if we are able to have a, a very specific uh, template, and after to prove they are able to meet, imitate it, we are able to prove they can encode information in equal location. So the step we are doing now is uh, this portative uh, sound gun that allows us to send a, a very, uh, not a big one, you know, if you, you want to send to a sperm whale, we, we would need a sperm whale sized gun that would be three meter. We cannot do that, but we, we need still to have a, something like a half a meter that allows us to send a real shape they can receive and have to see how they react and they try to imitate it. So that's like the sperm whale gunshot? So is that the equivalent sound that you're making back to the whale? And our gunshot is another sound. There is very, very few uh, recording of it. Mm-hmm. Of it. Uh, you know, I had a chance to record one uh, in Sri Lanka. It's still a controversial uh, sound because it's not proven. It's really a sperm whale that is doing it. But for me, it is. And this one, we're able to, to calculate it was at a depth of 500 meters. So the, the gunshot is a sound they use. Uh, it's assumed to stun the prey. Uh, but it's very, very rare. Uh, it's kind of a click. It's kind of a sound of a collocation. Now, the, the sound we're going to try to send uh, doesn't need to be a, a very loud sound because, for instance, when a sperm whale sends a click to a target, it gets an echo. The echo is a very, very tiny sound. You cannot even hear it. So, uh, I mean, they are able to get this very, very tiny sound and uh, to get the shape of a target through it. So, you don't need to send a very, very loud thing. You just need to send a, a sound that has a structure that uh, is a echo structure. What's also extraordinary, the whales, when you're actually there with them in the water on a single gulp of air, not only are they not physically approaching you and harming you, but to the contrary, as you were saying, keeping their distance and kind of intrigued by you, but they're also modulating their clicks so that they don't shatter your bones, right? Because you wrote about this one experience where you held out your hand and touched the nose of a, of a young whale, and I guess it had started to click, and your, your arm was pretty much paralyzed for the rest of the day. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, to, to explain it, uh, you know, their sound is 240 decibels. So uh, uh, to give you an example, if you... Um, if you have a, a starship, you know, uh, it's 180 decibels. Or an airplane is 160 decibels. So these animals are, and every three decibels, you double. So these animals are maybe 1,000 times louder than a starship, you know. Uh, so um, it means uh, when you get this uh, beam of sound uh, in your body, it, it really uh, does something. So uh, it was when it was okay, but... Uh, it is assumed it can uh, give you, uh, you know, micro hemorrhage. You know, just break some uh, some uh, blood vessel uh, into into your brain. It's, it's it's really something that can potentially kill you uh, if if they really target it on you. But for that, uh, they, they have this ability to use their sound with their head as a laser. You know, they have this very specific organ we call the spermaceti and the junk. Uh, they send the sound through a parabolic uh, hair bag, you know, in their head. They have to send it through acoustic lens that are made, uh, that are made of fiber, muscle fiber and collagen. And they are able to focus the sound in a very, very powerful beam, you know, like, you know, if you can use your lamp, you know, very wide or in a very, very focused beam. And if they do that, they can focus the energy in, in, in a target, you know. So uh, they, I, I mean, if they don't want to do it, there is uh, no way they will hurt you. But if they want to do it, for sure, I think you can even be hurt if you, you won't see the sperm whale. You will be hurt before you see it. Can you talk about what it's been like to launch this organization, Darwin? It's extraordinarily innovative and draws together cinematographers, physicists, journalists, divers, acoustic researchers. The idea of Darwin is um, is coming from a kind of frustration because when... Uh, when I was uh, going to back to university, because I, I was uh, going back uh, to do a medicine biology uh, 
though I was still working, but I, I wanted to have a, a culture of biology. So I, I did this MSc in a, as a free student. And uh, I discovered that uh, this was not a politically correct subject, you know, uh, trying to study if some animals have a language or even try to communicate with humans is far from politically correct. And uh, I discovered first that no one was working on it, but the people that were talking about it was kind of new age uh, people, you know, and it was this subject, if you started to go in that direction, uh, you could really have people laughing at you, you know, uh, you could be turned in ridiculous. So it was a very touchy subject and and the academics didn't want to go in that direction. So the first first goal of uh, Darwin was to try to uh, to put the door on this subject and to make it interesting. So it was first to collect data to show it was able we were able to collect data that was not evident because most people are saying you know you, you cannot really go in water and collect data because the, this well will just dive and you won't get enough. Uh, that we were able to develop technology that will allow us to collect the good data so we can analyze it, you know, so with an acoustic antenna and with virtual reality so we can see in 360 and get all the scene and after to share it. So we started to share it with uh, some uh, university. We shared it with a uh, university in South of France. We shared it, uh, uh, we were contacted recently by Harvard. So the first part of the job was to, to uh, the goal was to that some scientists were going into this subject. And I, I'm very proud to see that recently, the last two or three years, there were at least three labs starting to work on it. That was not a, a, a fact uh, 10 years ago or even seven years ago. So I think uh, the more there will be people uh, going into that direction, the more we have uh, a chance that there could be a discovery in this field. But first, we have to accept the idea that it is a, a serious subject. In addition to it being a, a very serious subject, as you say, you've written and said before that there's just not time to wait for the pace at which academic research was occurring before you started Darwin and that these whales continue to be threatened by pollution, by environmental change, by hunting, not for the, you know, in, in, to the same degree as during the whaling industry, but still to a very significant degree, such that their populations are probably declining now. Um, can you talk about what the current status of the whales are and what's threatening to them? And because I, from our understanding, you know, that's part of the motivation for wanting to both understand them and, and to save them. So I think uh, whales are interesting uh, because uh, they can be really the ambassador of the ocean. You know, we, uh, we cannot talk of a whale uh, without talking about the ocean globally. Uh, what we know about the ocean, the perspective is uh, that everything more or less will be uh, down in 2050. So when I say down, there, it won't be any more possible to fish, basically. Uh, we don't really know what's going to happen, you know. There is a lot of projection uh, of scientists about it. Some say it will be a jellification of the ocean, only jellyfish and algae bloom, you know. Uh, but we don't really know what's going to happen. And there is already some area in the ocean where there is no oxygen, for example, abiotic uh, area in the, in the ocean. So the, the ocean are dying. But, but the ocean are also 8% of a planet, they give us 70% of our oxygen. So what uh, What if we kill the ocean? We don't really know what's going to happen. And it's not in 100 years, it's in 30 years. So uh, when you talk about the status of a whale, some people uh, say, for instance, that the sperm whale are not really endangered now, but we have to know that there was a million of sperm whale uh, uh, so 200 years ago, and there are only maybe... 400,000 now. Uh, so, and for over well, there is less than 1% of the initial uh, population. So, uh, I think uh, right now, wh what we can say uh, is that uh, the, the evolution uh, of the ocean is just catastrophic. And what we can do about it, uh, there is many ways to change this. The UN uh, say, okay. Uh, we must do a marine protected area. So there is a goal of 20% of marine protected area. And right now on the planet, there is maybe uh, 
5%, I think, of marine protected area, but only a few countries do it. You know, US is 45%, France is 45%, after it goes down maybe to 10%, and the fifth country, I think, that is Norway is 1%, so uh, it's very unequal. So why we are not able to accept the idea that we just protect 20% of the ocean? That is not a lot, it's a fifth of the ocean. I think uh, there is a lack of empathy for the ocean, because, uh, well, don't cry, you know, uh, you know, uh, there are still some nations that are whaling, that are killing whale, uh, that are hunting whale. Uh, for instance, hunting whale is like, uh, you know, if you are running after an elephant, uh, just shoot at him with a, a truck and drag him alive in a, in, a big, uh, in a big place where you cut him alive, you know. And that's what we are doing. And, what, you know, these animals are, are very sensitive, they have strong uh, social bounds, and we still do that. So... Uh, for me, what is very, very important if you want to make a change right now uh, is that we want to uh, save the ocean for the ocean, not only because it's a resource, not only because we're afraid we're going to die because we won't get oxygen, just because we assume there are, you know, over animals, uh, over animals that have emotions, that have feelings, that love their children like whales. And if we can show that to people, I think, it can change the way we behave with the ocean, but not only with the ocean, with the animal kingdom, with 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 the planet. You know, we really need to recreate uh, an emotional link uh, with with the nature. Not only you know uh, uh, talk about uh, you know stocks, talk about the trend of the CO two, talk about the global warming, talk about the threat on the human. You know, just say uh, they deserve it. They really deserve it. We have to save the world not only because we want our children to see the world. We have to save the world because they also love their children. I couldn't agree more. And it reminds me of a piece that uh, of the New York Times piece that you collaborated on in which the writer points out that a situation like this one demands not just scientific epiphany, but emotional epiphany and at great, great scale throughout the throughout the human population to do something both, both for you know, both obviously for our children, but also for the whales and their children, as you say. And I'm curious in that regard, what inspired you to choose the name Darwin for your organization? It was a kind of a joke, you know. It oh. was uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, maybe what we our idea is crazy, and maybe uh, there is one chance on one thousand that this is true, and there is one chance on one thousand that we can make it. So it will be one chance on one million at the end. But we still go, we still try, because it's worth it, you know. Uh, if you really can uh, discover that uh, there is something we missed for the last 50 years, and there is a, a very smart creature, creature in version that has a, a language even more sophisticated than us, why not? Uh, I think it would be a real, real big thing. Uh, real big thing for humanity. So I think this is a crazy idea. This is a, uh, not a sure idea. I, I don't, I feel nothing. I just say, we try, we try. Is it really impossible that uh, this thing uh, happen? I don't think so. And, uh, you know, after that, uh, there is two aspects in, in Darwin, you know, uh, we're invited, I don't know if you knew that, but we we're awarded by the UN uh, two years ago. Uh, by a solution summit, so invited in New York uh, uh, to present Darwin uh, at the United Nations. And uh, the thing uh, with Darwin, so we give us a, a chance uh, to uh, to discover something or to open the door to uh, more uh, uh, new field of science and to convince scientists that is a serious subject. But uh, there is on, not only this dimension, there is also another dimension, is that the, the tool we use uh, to collect data that are virtual reality and a very, uh, uh, you know, a, a 3D sound uh, that allow really to be there, uh, allow us to bring people to meet this animal. Uh, and to, to you can have the experience uh, to meet a sperm whale and, and to, feel, uh, to feel the emotion of the encounter because virtual reality allow you uh, to feel this emotion. And I think sometimes the answer cannot be only scientific, you know. Uh, for instance, is it possible to prove love? You know? Or can you prove love, you know? Or can you... But you can feel it. You can feel the, the love of a mother for a calf. You can feel all, all of this. 
So I think there is also this dimension that is to raise the awareness. Uh, that's what we presented through the virtual reality because uh, this technology is quite new, but uh, in a few years, uh, everyone will have access to it, you know, in Asia, uh, in, in education, in Africa. And I think we can reach people that will never dive. And even people that dive will never have the chance to meet these animals. If we can meet millions, hundreds of millions of people, billions of people meet whales, sharks, and have a real emotional connection with them, I think we can make a change uh, with the way they behave uh, with the ocean and with the nature. If it were possible to say something to the whales, I'm curious, what would you say? I, w- I would say, uh, I would say joke. I would say, where is the gold? <laughs> they know where it is. <laughs> and after we can find our research. <laughs> oh, well, to close, uh, we like to ask each of our guests for two or three um, books or films or um, role models, if, if they haven't published necessarily, that have influenced how they think about animals and human-animal communication and relationships. Do several come to mind to you that you would recommend to listeners? I'm, I'm uh, right now reading a wonderful book uh, that is maybe heard about him, about him Franz Deval, Mama Last Hug. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very interesting book uh, that kind of, I think, uh, opened the mind of, of people because it, it really... Uh, show us we are part of, of the animal kingdom. Uh, but I, another uh, inspiration, uh, a great source of inspiration, uh, I think, uh, uh, is this famous uh, French uh, explorer that uh, you, you, you must remember him, Jacques Cousteau, because uh, this guy was uh, at the edge of exploration, engineering, science. He was, uh, and that's exactly what we try to do. You know, we are not... Uh, we're scientists, we are, we are doing something that is research and development, you know, we develop technology, we collect data, and I think science is just a part of it, you know. You must also, this guy was doing movie, he was creating new, uh, new submarines, he discovered the scuba, and I think the solution is really develop technology, show beautiful image, and do science. It's all of this, you know, and all of this will allow us really to to, to, to get underwater and uh, to see what's happening uh, really uh, with animals. Not only uh, on the scientific point of view, because, you know, it, it won't be always possible to prove everything. And maybe we don't have time for this. You remind me of Jacques Cousteau in many ways, and that he also, in addition to being, you know, all the things that you mentioned, refused to um, be part of sort of the, the common dominant academic way of approaching animals now whereby it's very cold and sterile and, you know, approach them as relationships, really. I remember reading a piece about him um, collecting, he was studying octopuses and was on his um, Calypso vessel and they had the octopuses on board and the octopuses were escaping and going from their containers and going back into the ocean. And he writes, you know, so beautifully about how just moved the whole crew was and how everyone on the crew who'd collected these octopuses was rooting for the creatures to escape as well. Um, and that they, there's a recognition of kinship in his work that I think is very much resonated and, and reflected in yours too. I would be very proud if we could do only a, a little piece of what he did, for mm-hmm. sure. Well, Fabrice Schnoller, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you too to our terrific audio engineer, Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Fabrice Schnoller and Darwin and their remarkable work. Thanks for listening.